I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we will discuss the history and meaning of the 14th Amendment, which turns 150 this year. Together with the Constitutional Accountability Center and with wonderful support from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Constitution Center will host a series of constitutions about the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment here in Philadelphia, across the country, and online. Uh, This year, 2016, is the 150th anniversary of the proposal of the amendment. We will continue these discussions until July 9th, 2018th, which was the 150th anniversary of ratification. And today's podcast kicks off these important discussions. We hope you'll join us in the months ahead. Uh, Of course, February is also African American History Month, and one of the most important organizations in the history of the 14th Amendment is the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, founded in 1940, and we will discuss that as well. We have two of America's most distinguished jurists uh, to discuss uh, the 14th Amendment. We're honored to have in studio uh, Chief Judge Theodore McKee, who oversees the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, based here in Philadelphia, across the street at the Third Circuit. So honored always to have you here. Judge McKee, welcome. And joining us by phone is Judge James Wynn, who sits on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, based in Richmond. Judge Wynn, we had a great conversation about the 13th Amendment in D.C., and it's an honor to have you back as well. I'm just going to begin by quoting the 14th Amendment. Uh, there's, it's, it's perhaps the most litigated, most important part of uh, Supreme Court uh, litigation today, um, and it was uh, passed by Congress on June 13th, 1866, and here it goes. Uh, this is section one. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Judge Wynn, you spoke so powerfully about the significance of the 13th Amendment on the 150th anniversary of its ratification. Tell us about the relationship between the 13th and 14th Amendment and why the 14th Amendment was passed by Congress. Thank you, Jeff, and it's a pleasure to be here with Chief Judge McGee, one of my great uh, friends uh, on the court. the significance of the 14th Amendment cannot be understated, at least in terms of its interaction with the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment, had it been interpreted, I think, on a very broad scale and had the, the, the enforcement provisions of the 13th Amendment taken force to grant certain rights uh, to uh, uh, African Americans uh, in, uh, uh, in that time period, then perhaps the, th- the 14th Amendment would not have been necessary. But the historical purpose of this amendment was essentially to prevent the Confederate states from discriminating against uh, uh, blacks at that time. And uh, because it was used in that fashion, uh, the 14th Amendment became ever so necessary. Uh, It conveyed certain rights, not only the uh, due process rights, but the equal protection rights under the Constitution. 
that that have become the, the the salient parts of so much of the litigation, as you say, one of the most uh, litigated, if not the most litigated part of the Constitution uh, today. Uh, the, the significant goes on, and it has reached into so many different areas, and I'm looking forward to discussing uh, much of that with you today. Great. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Uh, uh, Judge McKee, there are at least three clauses in the 14th Amendment, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, the Due Process Clause, the Equal Protection Clause. Judge Wynn said that had the 13th Amendment been interpreted more broadly, the 14th might not have been necessary. And yet soon after the 14th was passed, the Supreme Court eviscerated many of its provisions. Tell us about the early interpretations of the 14th Amendment. Well, did the 13th Amendment basically, <clears throat> all it did was abolish slavery. That was it. Um, the reactions throughout the South and to some extent in, uh, in parts of the North to the enactment of the 13th Amendment and even the discussions around the 13th Amendment was to enact what's been called the Black Codes, which basically reduced back, uh, reinstated back a system of relationship to soil and relationship of, quote, labor to uh, employer, if you can call it employer, and I use that term very <laughs> generically, mm. which reintroduced slavery. Um, there were many provisions which <clears throat> made it impossible for free blacks uh, after the 13th Amendment and uh, slaves before then to have any kind of employment that was not agrarian. There were uh, areas throughout the South where they introduced uh, laws that prohibited blacks from living in towns and cities. They couldn't rent apartments, could not buy homes, so they were forced into <clears throat> an agrarian kind of life. And then along with that, there were provisions enacted in many laws which basically said that an employer, and again, I'm using that term in the looser sense, had the right to prevent or to keep from paying any wages if an employee left the term of employment before it was over. So that meant that if somebody was signed on to work for an indentured servitude uh, period, for example, for a period of a year, worked for a period of 11 months, and at the end of the 11 months, the employer began visiting on that person uh, conditions that were just intolerable and the person left, they lost all of the wages. They were not entitled to any wages at all. The other vagrancy laws enacted, <clears throat> which uh, would fine someone for for being a, co a so-called vagrant, and obviously if you can't find a job and you're on the street, then under the old regime, you're probably a vagrant. The punishment for vagrancy was uh, hard labor, and they're basically then hired out to the same people who had been slave owners before. So that was the condition after the 13th Amendment. The provisions of the 14th Amendment, which you then uh, just read, <clears throat> were intended to extend the protection of the law and extend the promise, if you will, of the 13th Amendment to uh, not just freed persons, but all persons. And there, were, there was a lot of debate uh, along with the enactment of the 14th Amendment. It's just how far it could go. And if we have time, I'd like to get into some of the lost opportunity there, because if you look at the discussions leading up to the 14th Amendment, it's clear to me and to a number of people who have looked at this <clears throat> that the intent of the legislator and the committee especially that enacted the, um, that was, primarily charged with drafting the 14th Amendment, was to set a situation up where black folks would be able to shed all of the uh, trappings of, of slavery, even if that meant they were given inherent privileges legally and socially over whites. And the debates along the Freedmen's Bureau focused on just that. And to my mind, enactment of the 14th Amendment in the um, language that it was, at the same time the Freedmen Bureau was enacted, shows that Congress intended to create a legal system <clears throat> that would give blacks some of what we now may call affirmative action in terms of employment and, and uh, ed certainly an educational opportunity. There were special schools set aside at taxpayer expense for 
the education of black folks, that whole uh, intent has been kind of dropped out of the discussion of the 14th Amendment, has dropped out of the discussion of the affirmative action program today, but it's there in the historical record if you want to look at it. That's fascinating. And Judge Wynn, let me ask you about that. So Judge McKee just said the core purpose of the 14th is to give Congress the power to uh, repudiate these hated black codes, which denied African-Americans the right to sue and be sued and inherit property and so forth. But he also said that the framers of the 14th allowed programs designed to help African-Americans. They did not intend to embrace a colorblindness rule across the board. They only meant to prohibit laws intended to stigmatize and degrade African-Americans. And therefore, according to Chief Judge McKee, affirmative action is consistent with the original understanding of the 14th Amendment. Do you agree or disagree? Well, I, I just love Judge McGee's uh, take on things, and it's hard to disagree with him on most, much of it. <laughs> He's pretty, pretty, pretty serious, absolutely. I, I do want to point out the contextual uh, significance of the 13th Amendment and that, you know, we got to think, uh, you know, if you go back and look in, in terms of the general attitude of people across the United States, I think popular, uh, in the popular uh, sense, I'm sure many, even Northerners or Southerners, ever intended to confer full rights upon African Americans or, or blacks at the time of the end of slavery. Uh, there was a focus there, but you did have certain individuals. I mean, you had the status uh, uh, Stevens and, and you had uh, Trumbull uh, and others in Congress who, who saw this. Well, let me, let me point to something that I think is very focal and, and not so much to, to show the basis of why it was done, but to give some light in terms of what the effect of the 13th Amendment did. You know, the 13th Amendment, in, in effect, uh, by, by moving itself into the position of saying, well, okay, now we no longer have slavery, and if you don't have slavery, those who had previously been counted uh, three-fifths would now be counted wholly. And yet, uh, there would be no right to vote. And without the right to vote, that meant that this, the, the representation for the southern states would be disproportionately, would, would be greatly increased, I should say. And as a result of that, uh, uh, without African Americans or blacks at that time being able to vote, essentially the, the white southerners would, would use that large number to gain greater representation and power in Congress, and at the same time, maybe begin to reinstitute much of that that the Civil War and uh, Reconstruction had sought to, to undo. Uh, so that brought about the need for the, the, the 14th Amendment from a practical standpoint of view, uh, coupled with the idea that, well, there's this great force out there, what we call the radical Republicans, who really wanted to restore and, and wanted to give rights uh, to African Americans uh, on a greater scale. Uh, this, this interesting tension that brings the state into the Union and even with bringing uh, these states back to even force this to become the law, what is so interesting to me is, is, uh, is how it was done. I mean, uh, on the one hand, uh, maybe states could not, states uh, by the Supreme Court could prevent uh, African Americans from uh, voting, or blacks, uh, I'll use that term, from voting. But at the same time, Congress passes this, this innocuous law that says, well, if you do that, you can't count them as citizens. Uh, and therefore, they won't be in the representative process. Uh, which then forces the, the movement to begin to ratify the uh, 13th Amendment to get this greater representation. Uh, so, I mean, there, there are a lot of uh, uh, collateral and, and interesting meanings uh, that can come from this, but as we begin to move through to the process and see the interaction of the Supreme Court of Congress, and let us not forget Andrew Johnson and the fact that, that, that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated uh, on April 15 of, of 1865, 
that was so significant because Andrew Johnson was not a friend to, to, to blacks, and he made that quite clear. He had no intentions of, of giving them voting rights. He, he even uh, vetoed uh, legislation by Congress. He did everything he could, including the, the Civil Rights of 1866, which, by the way, the Civil Rights of, of Act 1866 gave, I think, virtually everything you would have needed for the 14th Amendment. The problem was there were many who felt like it was going to be held to be unconstitutional. And as a result of that, you needed the 14th Amendment in order to be able to, to, to give vigor to those rights that uh, the, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 had, had, had brought about. Well, that, you've made a, several really important points, uh, one of which is that the 14th Amendment, as you said, is not intended to confer voting rights. And, and we know that from Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, which, and I want to read as much of it as possible as throughout the podcast, it says that, uh, it says that uh, when the right to vote in any election... Uh, for the choice of electors for president, vice president, representative, and so forth, is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state, uh, the uh, the basis for representation therein shall be reduced in proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number. So basically they're anticipating, as you said, that southern states might deny the right to vote to African Americans, and they didn't want them to swamp Congress with southern Democrats as a result. Uh, Chief Judge McKee, w- what... Uh, how significant is it that the 14th Amendment doesn't cover voting rights? Does that mean that me- much of modern voting rights jurisprudence, including cases like Bush v. Gore, is hard to reconcile with the original understanding of the 14th since it wasn't intended well, to pr- protect voting rights at all? Under the 14th, uh, that's true, but the 15th Amendment was enacted soon thereafter and that um, extended voting rights to uh, blacks on the same terms that whites had it, and that was uh, basically... Uh, black males, and it may have actually been black males who own property. I'd have to, I'm not sure of that, but I believe that was the limitation. So the, that that hole in the 14th Amendment was patched, but I do agree with what uh, Judge Wynn just said in terms of had the 13th Amendment been given its initial breadth, the 14th probably would not have been what necessary. It really depends on how you define the um, impact of slavery. And there are a group of cases that I did want to try to mention that I think indicate this. There were a group of cases called the Civil Rights Cases that were decided by the Supreme Court in 1883, and it was brought to the Supreme Court as a challenge to certain, I'll call them public accommodations acts that were enacted by Congress, and they looked very much like the subsequent 1964 Civil Rights Act in that they opened up uh, theaters and restaurants and modes of public transportation uh, to everybody, and there's a federal law saying that persons could be denied, could not be denied access to those facilities and services based upon color. A challenge was brought to that federal legislation arguing that it was beyond the power of the federal Congress to enact that kind of <clears throat> legislation, and that led to an interpretation of the various provisions of the, the 14th Amendment. The Section 5 of the, 15th Amend- of the 14th Amendment says that Congress has the powers that are necessary to enact legislation to ensure the guarantees of the 14th Amendment. So there was an issue about whether or not Section 5 gave Congress sufficient power to um, legislate this kind of opening of public facilities. The Supreme Court uh, held, and the first part of what its analysis was fine, it did say that the purpose of the 14th Amendment was to, uh, and the 13th Amendment, was to eliminate slavery, but it also said that the Congress through Section 5 had the power not just to abolish the institution of slavery, 
but to abolish the indicators and the badges, if you will, of slavery, those things which were endemic to the institution of slavery. Congress also had the authority through Section 5 to abolish. One could argue that the very kind of uh, racial segregation that the uh, public accommodations actions were aimed at were, in fact, badges and indicators of slavery. It was enforcing the same kind of segregation and social stratification that slavery had enforced before that. The court, however, became very myopic in how it looked at the badges of slavery, and it said that those things that are inherent in slavery, which Section 5 was designed to empower Congress to address, basically dealt with corporal punishment, the relationship of the employer to the employee, and again, using that term very, very broadly, it did not deal with the kind of social ramifications that um, the Civil Rights Acts that were being challenged, the Public Accommodations Acts were, that were being challenged, were aimed at, and therefore that kind of legislation was beyond the scope of Congress, and it was struck down. <clears throat> Had the court taken a different tact and said that, well, if we look at what's happening here, these kind of segregated uh, facilities are really nothing more than an extension of the kind of social um, reality that was very much a part of slavery, Congress does have the authority under uh, Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to strike that down under the Privileges and Immunities Clause or under the Equal Protection Clause, either one. We would have a very, very different constitutional history starting from 1883. We would have had a very, very different evolution. Brown would not have been necessary. The Public Accommodations Act uh, uh, of um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 would not have been necessary. Mm. The Voting Act would not have been necessary, and clearly... Arguably, the Voting Act wasn't necessary anyhow, given what the 15th Amendment says, but it was necessary, as we know. Fascinating. I'm so glad you mentioned the civil rights cases. Such a dramatic story. One dissent from Justice John Marshall Harlan, who has writer's block, and his wife notices the inkwell at the Supreme Court where Chief Justice Taney wrote the Dred Scott decision. She puts it on his desk. He gets back from church, sees Taney's inkwell, and he's just filled with a passion to dissent from the civil rights cases and Mm. says, just as you did, that it should cover private discrimination uh, in public accommodations. Um, listeners can go to the Interactive Constitution um, and see Erwin Chemerinsky and Earl Maltz talking about the 14th Amendment Enforcement Clause, and they talk about how it took until 1966, the guest case, for six justices to say that Section 5 empowered Congress to outlaw private discrimination. Uh, Judge Wynn, um, take up Chief Judge McKee's really interesting suggestion do you agree that had the court come out the other way in the civil rights cases that Brown and, and the Civil Rights Act of 64 and much of the litigation that followed might not have been necessary? No question. They're limiting power, uh, limiting uh, uh, holdings in the civil rights cases, including the, uh, the many cases that, 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 that flowed from that, uh, really limited the reach of the 14th Amendment, not just in terms of defining with limited with state action, but also in terms of ultimately holding that, you know, the enforcement section of, of uh, the Voting Rights Act uh, really uh, doesn't give uh, Congress the right to enforce substance law, which you get into the whole business of or, the, or to substantively define what is it that you can't do. You can only, I guess, in a way, look back and react uh, to what has already been done, and then you can prevent that. So, therefore, we get into modern discussions now on, this, on, the, on the Shelby County case and other things in terms of the reach of the 14th Amendment and what Congress can and cannot do. I mean, it did, it, and, it's, and it's a back-and-forth, almost like a love-hate relationship in terms of 
of the reach of it. I mean, we, we see it reaching out to, to allow Congress to establish the Voting Rights Act of, of uh, 1960s and uh, 66 or so, and, and, and yet 65, and, and yet at the same time, uh, a limitation in terms of, well, how much can be done? And, and Congress says, well, uh, in, in one case, it says, uh, you know, Congress has been given the power to enforce, not the power to determine what constitutes a constitution violation. I think that was in, a, in the Flores case. And, and, and so when you see those kinds of, of limitations being placed on the reach of Section 5 uh, of the Voting Rights Act in terms of what Congress can and cannot do, uh, it's an interesting uh, paradigm in which the Supreme Court has not always been in agreement with itself, I might point out. Maybe Tim Oreskes and others can elaborate on that better than I. But it seems to me uh, that, that there's a lot of nuance in here that's going on. And even now, we are, we are continuing to grapple with the question of, of, of how much is this power that Congress possesses to enforce. And, of course, to get beyond the, 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 you know, what, what the, the, the reach of the, the limitation on on, on not reaching private, you know, the other sections of, of, the, of the Constitution, the Commerce Clause and others that have been used for it. But by far, this would have been the most effective way to do it had Congress, had the Supreme Court taken that level of interpretation, I would say much of what is going on probably would have been alleviated, but it certainly would be, it, it would be litigated in a different way like now. Fascinating. So, uh, Chief Judge McKee, Judge Wynn notes a bunch of cases, modern cases, where the Supreme Court has disagreed about how much Section 5 authorizes Congress to outlaw discrimination. He mentioned some cases. They're, they're more on the interactive Constitution. U.S. v. Morrison, the Supreme Court says Congress doesn't have the power to enact the Violence Against Women Act. Uh, Judge Wynn mentioned Shelby County, which said it didn't have the power to extend key provisions of the Voting Rights Act. There's the City of Bernie case, which said it couldn't um, enact the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Are these cases wrong, and, and do you think that Section 5 was intended to be construed more broadly to give Congress broad broad power? Well, even though I had a life tenure as a circuit judge, I'm not about to say that the Supreme Court decided a case wrongly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say Judge Posner, <laughs> judge Posner does all the time. <laughs> he does indeed. Yeah, I will say that they're really open to um, debate and question. You mentioned Owen Chemininsky, and Dean Chemininsky has a wonderful article in the Loyola Law Review, where he takes up this issue and argues, I think, very persuasively that the um, Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment has become a dead letter. He cites six specific cases where the Supreme Court got it dead wrong, according to the dean. The the, um, several rights cases that I've mentioned were one, the slaughterhouse cases that many people are familiar with are others, but according to him... Sorry, tell people what the slaughterhouse cases were and what they did. Slaughterhouse cases, basically, it was a group of uh, butchers in uh, New Orleans who filed a lawsuit because the state had tried to enact legislation that gave one particular slaughterhouse, I guess, um, uh, status over the others, and they brought a lawsuit saying that that was improper, and the Supreme Court said that it indeed was not proper and that the uh, 14th Amendment was not meant to afford that kind of immunity from state action, uh, which is, to my mind, clearly contrary to the text of the, um, to the statute, the civil rights cases we've already, we've already talked about. And according to the Dean Shemrisky, the a majority of the court has never, ever seized upon the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment to strike down a discriminatory legislation or to uphold something like the Voting Rights Act or to... Um, deal with the Religious uh, Restoration Act. And had it done that, again, under the Privileges and Immunities Clause, I think there's much more 
breadth to do it, the, the backing in terms of grounding that to the historical text and to the deliberations of the framers, not just of the Constitution, and we can't really talk about their intent here because their intent was to perpetuate slavery. They wrote it in terms of the fugitive slave uh, provision, but the subsequent framers of the 14th and the 13th and the 15th Amendment, <clears throat> that their intent has dropped out of the out of the um, picture, and I think it's a lost clause. Right now, that legislation that we're talking about is really grounded in the Commerce Clause, where if Congress has um, the ability to regulate commerce as it does, it can then enact legislation which may be seen as police powers, but it's really powers which go to enhance Congress's ability to regulate intrastate commerce and inter, interstate commerce, rather, and intrastate commerce that in the aggregate has an impact on interstate commerce. And that was the, the battle of the Affordable Care Act. The Privileges and Immunities Clause, I think, gives a much straighter and greater avenue to getting at these redresses, but for whatever reason, it's just dropped out of the debate. And perhaps it's dropped out of the debate, the pessimist in me says, because legal scholars realize where that gets you, and it might get you to a place that folks are just not prepared to uh, to reach. Uh, very interesting indeed. Uh, so Judge Wynn, as Chief Judge McKee says, the slaughterhouse cases have been widely criticized by liberal and conservative scholars for being historically inaccurate, and one of their big effects was to prevent the incorporation of the Bill of Rights, in other words, to forbid the states as well as the federal government from abridging the basic privileges and immunities guaranteed in the first and most of the first 10 amendments. Um, given the consensus that those cases were wrong, is it fair to say that the Supreme Court really thwarted the purposes of the 14th Amendment and it took almost a century to undo the damage of the, these early Supreme Court decisions? I think the Supreme Court has done that itself in a, in a series of cases following the slaughterhouse cases. I mean, of course, the slaughterhouse cases said, I guess, essentially that the 14th Amendment didn't incorporate the Bill of Rights, but you had a couple of dissenting judges who felt otherwise. And over time in history, we've got a series of cases coming from Towns versus Sullivan on up to Gideon and others that, that indicate that clearly there is this uh, incorporation of certain rights, so much so that you only have just a few which you can probably point to in the, under the Bill of Rights. Uh, and most recently, uh, I, I, just to pick up on what Judge McGee was saying on the Privileged and Immunity Clause, uh, uh, Justice Thomas is the one in the McDonald case that brought it up in, in so far as the Second Amendment and says that's the way he would do it. And, and you know, that's probably that, that's probably a cleaner way to do it under the Privileges and Immunity, but for the precedent that, that has limited the reach of the Privileges and Immunities Clause. So I, I think that, you know, when you look at the, the reach of the slaughterhouse cases, uh, the initial impact was certainly there. But this whole business of the incorporation of the Bill of Rights uh, uh, has, has become so much of a reality with, with a string of cases that uh, the Supreme Court has uh, moved through. A lot of them came through in the 60s uh, uh, that now uh, has uh, probably set the stage for so much of that being the biggest issue. What, in fact, is incorporated by the uh, 14th Amendment uh, at this point. So, Chief Judge McKee, this is a very uh, interesting prospect. As Judge Wynn says, Justice Thomas has said that it would have been better to incorporate the Bill of Rights through the Privileges or Immunities Clause. That was the McDonald argument where Justice Scalia kind of dismissed that claim, but I think scholars think Justice Thomas might have been on strong grounds. And this is a huge deal. Just so listeners understand, James Madison proposed an amendment that he considered the most important in the, in, in the entire group that would have prohibited initially the states 
as well as the federal government from, here it is, I'm looking on the interactive constitution, uh, Madison's proposal 14th, no state shall violate the equal rights of conscience or the freedom of the press or the trial by jury in criminal cases. That didn't pass in 1789. It took the 14th Amendment to try to forbid the states as well as the feds from violating those basic rights. But because of the slaughterhouse and other decisions we've been discussing, it took a century for the Supreme Court to catch up. Chief Judge McKee, you said maybe it would have taken the court in a place they weren't prepared to go. What did you mean by that? And how might our constitutional history look differently if the slaughterhouse cases had come out the other way? Well, one place it may have taken them is what I mentioned too earlier, and that is the whole debate about the, the zero-sum gain argument, that <clears throat> when you have uh, legislation which advantages one group, it can't advantage one group at the uh, disadvantagement of another group, and that's kind of into the whole Fisher argument, the affirmative action argument in education. If you look at it uh, strictly from the terms of, I think, what Thaddeus Stevens had in mind, one of the main drafters of the 14th Amendment from Pennsylvania, a very strong Republican who may have been the most influential congressperson at the time, and also John Bingham from Ohio, who was also implement, uh, instrumental in drafting the 14th Amendment, Again, it seems very clear to me because of what they said and their work in drafting the legislation establishing the Freedmen's Bureau that that is exactly what they had in mind, and that was exactly what they intended the 14th Amendment to do. Uh, Judge Wynn earlier mentioned what Johnson had done in terms of vetoing, I think you mentioned also, Jeff, vetoing much of the legislation that was enacted at the time. Eventually, much of that was passed and enacted in the the Freedmen's Bureau uh, as an example of that. But the... um, the, the, the better way to look at it, I think, is by trying to get at the Privileges and Immunities Clause and the incorporation doctrine that we're, that we're discussing now that basically is a discussion of which of the Bill of Rights will be enforced against the states. And as many of the listeners know, the original Bill of Rights, those things that we think of as being fundamental to our liberty, right by, to trial by jury, uh, presumption of innocence, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, right to counsel, when it finally came about, all of those things in the first Ten Amendments to the Bill of Rights, and it's pretty universally understood, were only meant to limit the action of the federal government so that a state would be perfectly free to enact legislation saying that a newspaper could not, could not publish an editorial critical of the governor. That would be, under the First Amendment per se, that would be totally constitutional. That's <clears throat> the enforcement of the Bill of Rights against the states or uh, limiting the states uh, through the 14th Amendment, and it's been looked at as the Due Process Clause, that guarantees the Bill of Rights, the, the extensive, the protecting the Bill of Rights to uh, citizens of states and limits state action vis-a-vis or quasi the federal government. But again, the discussions, and there are many historical scholars who are much better at this than I am and more learned than I am, but the, the discussions that I've looked at that occurred during the time the 14th Amendment was ratified, there were statements made that the best way to ensure that the shackles of slavery were removed and that prior um, serfs were given the protection of the laws was to give them the protection of the Bill of Rights. And it was, I think, intended that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment was meant to do exactly that. And that's what they are talking about when they say life, liberty, and property, that that will not be denied but by the due process of law. law. They intended initially that um, the Bill of Rights would be incorporated into the Due Process Clause, and yet it took almost a century of piecemeal legislation after that uh, to determine whether or not the First Amendment guarantees would be incorporated, then whether or not the Fourth Amendment guarantees would be incorporated, and finally, and I think it was Duncan v. Louisiana, in a footnote, when they got away from debating 
which of the Bill of Rights are so fundamental to our society that they, by necessity, must be part of the order of liberty that, and therefore incorporated in the 14th Amendment, which was the piecemeal way that the courts initially looked at the Bill of Rights. They finally just said that the Bill of Rights themselves define those sources of liberty that are so fundamental to our, our system of democracy that all of them must be incorporated through the 14th Amendment. I think that was disposed of back in 60, 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified, but, but that's just, as uh, Brett Farr would say, but that's just me. <laughs> well, this is, it's, it's hugely important, and I, I want our listeners to really understand the significance of this. Chief Judge McKee has said, the framers of the 14th Amendment intend to incorporate most or all of the Bill of Rights and forbid the states as well as the feds from infringing it. Because of these early Supreme Court decisions, it takes almost a century of piecemeal selective incorporation to finally achieve the intention of the framers. Today, uh, almost all of the Bill of Rights, except if I remember correctly, the Third Amendment, the uh, bail provisions of the Eighth Amendment, and the civil jury provisions of the Seventh are incorporated. Those are the only exceptions. Uh, Judge Wynn, let's, we, we've talked about these early cases that thwarted the intentions of the 14th Amendment. Now let's talk about how some of those purposes were resurrected by early litigation from the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund through the heroic work of uh, people like uh, Charles Hamilton Houston and Thurgood Marshall. Slowly, the courts began to be persuaded in the 40s and 50s, culminating in Brown versus Board of Education, to begin to recognize uh, the power of the Equal Protection Clause. You've written about the NAACP's early work. Tell us a little bit about Thurgood Marshall's strategy and how those how those early victories were achieved. You know, the, the significance of the Legal Defense Fund, you know, which was founded under the leadership of, of Justice Marshall, I, I really want to emphasize Charles Hamilton Houston as being the real architect of, of this kind of legal thinking that focused on the 14th Amendment. Uh, because, you know, Marshall, of course, was, was a student, was a student, and uh, it was through his work, I think, that led to this Legal Defense Fund's uh, very intentional and, and very designed way in which to move the law in a direction toward uh, what the Legal Defense uh, Fund would describe as achieving racial justice, equality, and inclusiveness in our society. And, and of course, as a result of this, uh, they, they ultimately they were able to to, to achieve the overturning of Plessy versus Ferguson with the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And, and, and since that time, even the use of the due process uh, clause with the Brown Board of Education, it, it has been assailed by many scholars. But, but I, you know, I read an article recently, and, and maybe this came about when Justice Scalia passed away, uh, that it, it really came to the focus of it because there's been much, much talk about his, his whole theory of originalism. And it says, well, how, how does he get to this whole point of saying Brown is, is correct, which he, he did say it was correct decided, because I think it's just very difficult to say that, that, that it's not a correctly decided decision. The question is, how do you go about doing it uh, from a constitutional perspective? Uh, but what the Legal Defense Fund has done since that time period, not only moving from the Browns decision, we've gone into other areas dealing with the disparate impact framework, which has really taken this to a whole different level now, where you don't have that direct type uh, uh, indica- indicator, but a disparate impact, and, and the effect of that which has reached over into affirmative action cases of all types, the Grue case on up to the Fisher case, and issues that are still before the, the court now. Uh, it's, uh, there, there's just a lot of issues that have arisen as a result of the, the work of the Legal Defense Fund over the years, and uh, a, fascinating, a fascinating history 
in terms of the movement of how the, the 14th Amendment has been interpreted differently and how, it, to some extent, some would say expand and then contract it, expand and contract. But, but, but I think the work continues on and, 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 and very important indeed. Uh, thanks for that. Great account. Uh, Chief Judge McKee, I'm, I'm glad Judge Wynn mentioned the question of Brown and original understanding. In the wake of Justice Scalia's passing, many have noted that Brown is hard to reconcile on originalist grounds. People stood up in the Congress that proposed the 14th Amendment and said, don't worry, this isn't going to apply to schools because schools uh, going to schools is not a civil right, and this only applies to civil rights. And by the way, the District of Columbia maintains separate schools, and those are going to stay, so you don't have to worry about this. Justice Scalia didn't quite respond to those criticisms. I I wrote a piece for The Atlantic where I noted that I had the privilege of a dinner with Justice Scalia where I asked him point blank, you know, Brown's pretty hard to reconcile on originalist grounds. What do you say? And he basically had a big belly laugh and he said, well, no theory is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you, I mean, do you think it's, a, can you reconcile it on originalist grounds? And I, I, absolutely not. It's kind of like saying, look, I'm always right, except when I'm wrong. <laughs> and just, uh, I, I have problems with that whole school of constitutional interpretation. I think it, it the only other uh, of his colleagues that have really adopted it have been um, Justice Thomas. It is very difficult for me to assume that today in the year 2016 we can try to um, clone the minds of someone who lived at a time that they could not possibly have envisioned a lot of the technology which is giving rise to so many very hard legal issues today like GPS trackers and whether or not there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, those kinds of issues that arise today. You know, I cannot imagine that, that Madison and Jefferson wondered what would happen if you were able to put a satellite in the sky to track someone's movement and then take a device and attach it to someone's car. But that's the Jones case, and that's the kind of issue we have today. In, in, in the context of Brown, um, there were segregated schools in, in D.C. at the time, and, and that was part of the debates around the Freedmen's Bureau. Um, and it wasn't until 54, a companion case with Brown, Bowling B. Sharp, that the school desegregation, the school segregation in Washington D.C. ended. So it is really hard to say that the uh, originalist interpretation of the Constitution is consistent with Brown, or for that matter, this, the concept of stare decisis and what had been happening after Plessy. And Plessy was the law of the land that separate um, but equal was the law of the land. But the court had been more and more stringent through a series of cases brought by the Legal Defense Fund in defining what was equal. Initially, anything that was separate was looked at as being equal. And some of the exhibits in the Brown case and some of the cases leading up to that that show a library and a law school, I think it was the Pointer case, that is basically one room with a shelf full of uh, books that are dilapidated and a corresponding um, library in a uh, white university law school that has all the things you'd associate with a high-tech, given-the-time library. And the court would... uh, look at these and say, look, this is simply not equal. If, you're going, if it's going to be separate but equal, you've got to make this equal. And then finally that ended in 54 with the court acknowledging the profound psychological impact of the doctrine that separate but equal is inherently uh, unequal. But that is a, re- a very large departure from what the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court had been leading up to that point. So either in terms of stare decisis, uh, you could say Brown wasn't correctly decided, and clearly in terms of original intent, it wasn't correctly decided, but thank goodness it was decided the way it was, and I doubt many people today would really question the wisdom um, of Brown. Fascinating. Well, Judge Wynn, one more beat on that. This is such a great substantive discussion. I think the, the best effort to justify Brown on originalist grounds for our uh, really attentive uh, listeners 
go to Michael McConnell's article, Originalism and the Desegregation Decisions. It's in the Virginia Law Review. And basically he says, it's true that in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was proposed, people said it wouldn't affect school segregation. But by 1875 when the Civil Rights Act was proposed, things had become more liberal and some of the Reconstruction people who voted for the Civil Rights Act did think that the right to go to schools was a basic civil right. Charles Sumner on his deathbed says, I hope my bill will pass so that schools can be covered. So it's not, it doesn't work for a strict originalist who says, let's ask what people who thought the amendment uh, had in mind when they ratified it. But briefly, by 1875, there's a case that maybe schools were covered. Judge Wynn, is that uh, enough for an originalist? And then I want you to take up Chief Judge McKee's suggestion. Brown was decided not on originalism, but the psychological harm of desegregation. Those that That argument was criticized at the time by... Southern judges who ran trials about whether or not there really was psychological harm. And Justice Thomas said it shouldn't have been decided on basis of psychological harm, but just because the Constitution is colorblind. Was it a mistake for the court in Brown to emphasize psychological harm? I don't want to take on my friend, Professor, <laughs> and Judge McConnell's uh, take on the, whether or not the Brown case can be defended as an original, originalist approach. Uh, I think quite squarely, it, if you use the, the strict originalist approach, it would not uh, square in that around. So, but, but you know, Justice Scalia, as you said, he, he never really addressed that question. I, you know, when you when you look at that, you got to look at. I mean, I mean, who would who? I mean, just there's something intuitively just wrong about that uh, to to get on the other side of Brown in this day and time. I mean, and even then. You had a unanimous opinion, even though it was sort of a cajole to some extent. It nevertheless was unanimous in that day and time with justices from uh, from southern states. So, it, uh, you know, I, I think when you look at it now through the lens of, of where we are now, you probably could find some basis to say it has the original event uh, 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 to it. Judge McConnell did a really fine job of pointing to that. But the truth of the matter is it probably rests more on what uh, Judge McKee has uh, led us uh uh, into and and that is when you look at it contextually and you begin to sort of incorporate uh, some aspects of the Bill of Rights through the due process and equal protection here in particular uh, of, of what was going on maybe and I might be far reaching on this and I don't want to get too much into it but when you begin to look at how does Congress begin to do certain things uh, that uh, uh, in for instance in the Shelby case with the Voters and Rights type situation where it has not done the empirical basis for it to to satisfy it. And, of course, we got that answer recently from the, from the Supreme Court. Again, here, Brown is sort of the reverse of it. You've got this empirical basis from Dr. Kenneth Clark and others, and so much that, that's being brought to the court in an evidentiary uh, format to be able to show, well, perhaps this all comes together, and I would I would take it back to Section Five under the under the uh, the Fourteenth Amendment. Does Congress have a right to do certain things, or does this this offend uh, certain notions here of the Constitution? So you know, I, I think we could we could take Judge McConnell's uh, originalist approach uh, and and use it as a basis there. But to do so, you really would have to have that kind of mental gymnastics in order to be able to dig deep to find that basis. It doesn't glare out at you. And, 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 but it would take a judgment call to find it, and, and I respect the fact it's there. But I'm I'm just not so sure that is that is the basis I would use. <laughs> I, I think that's a fair uh, response. And and again, as you said, if if you're just going to ask what did, what did they think in 1866 and 1868, it's hard to justify the result. 
Uh, Chief Judge McKee, Judge Wynn just mentioned Ken, Dr. Kenneth Clark's studies, uh, which Chief Justice Warren mentioned in his footnote in Brown. These are studies that showed that young African-American kids who'd grown up in segregated schools were more likely when choosing dolls to pick white dolls rather than black ones because they had low self-image. And those studies were later criticized by Southern judges who ran trials about whether or not the studies were methodologically rigorous. Was that a mistake? And, and would it have been cleaner for Brown to be decided on the grounds that, as Charles Black, uh, the, the Yale scholar later said, everyone knew that the purpose of segregation was to stigmatize and degrade African-Americans? You don't need psychological studies to prove that? Well, the latter statement... Um Tanny did not know that that was where it was a segregation in, in Plessy v. Uh, Ferguson. He said that if the impact of the segregation system, which the court had just upheld, was to cause some kind of feeling of inferiority on the part of blacks, they obviously didn't say blacks, <clears throat> that's because of the interpretation the blacks choose to put on it, that's not necessarily something that's innate in the law. So that might seem obvious to, it, to us now. It's only obvious, I would submit, because of the, I think, real stroke of brilliance um, the work that was done by Kenneth Clark and, and Marshall and uh, Houston, as Chad Wynn mentioned, in plotting a strategy to best make the legal point. Uh, that doll experiment, by the way, and I'm not sure it was two or three years ago, but it was relatively recently reenacted, and unfortunately, same results huh. pertain. And that, that surprised me a bit. I thought, especially after the 60s and the uh, pride, proud in blackness and black pride movement, that some of that had been ameliorated, but maybe it just shows the power of the media. But that doll experiment is most recent incarnation that I'm aware of, the same results wow. were there in terms of um, self-hatred uh, and a, a projection of negative values on oneself if you're black and positive values if you're white. I, I think it was probably the best argument that could have been made in 54 to get around the whole stare decisis issue. Because as long as you're locked into just looking at stare decisis and being... Uh, for those folks who are not aware of it, the, the doctrine that basically says once the law is created or adjudicated, that should guide for future precedents and should not lightly be overturned. And I won't go as far as to say it should control future decisions on the same topic, but it, it basically does unless there's a good reason to deviate from it. There wasn't any real reason to deviate from uh, Plessy and all that had been happening to get away from it and make it less oppressive were the kinds of steps that I had mentioned and that was the courts being much more stringent in determining what really was equal, but allowing it to be separate if the same resources were expanded. Now, I should say that in and of itself was not totally lost because forcing states to spend the same amount of money on black schools as they did on white schools did to some extent put pressure on them to <clears throat> ameliorate the schools, but the pressure wasn't very effective because the separate school systems continued through 54 and they continued to this day for a very different reason. The genius of Brown, I think, was exactly that argument. To say, look, you've got to revisit um, Plessy because we now know, and we did not know it before, um, kind of tongue-in-cheek, that um, the system of separate but equal has effects on black students, irrespective of what the majority may have said in Plessy that is simply wrong, that it does have a negative impact. And the only way to make things truly equal is to do away with this separate of the facilities. And I, I think that was the only way to get at that back then. Fascinating. Judge Wynn, as Chief Judge McKee just said, it, desegregation did not occur immediately after Brown. It took uh, a long time. And in fact, it wasn't until the mid-60s 
Some say after the health and human services regulation that withheld federal funds from segregated schools, then meaningful desegregation began to occur. What was the importance of the civil rights movement and of subsequent regulations in fulfilling the promise of Brown? Uh, you know, Jeff, that's a question that could, well, Judge McGee and I could spend the rest of the evening with you on if you like. <laughs> well, you're welcome to because it's a great discussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at least yeah. on the on the borders of having experienced that personally. I, for one, attended a segregated school up until the high school years, and it was uh, it was well after the Brown versus Board of Education decision, of course. Uh, the effect the, over the years. Uh, I think when you look at the Brown case, there's been a lot of criticism, and initially much of it, some of it actually has arisen from the civil rights communities in terms of the language that was, was used there because of the need to do it. Judge McGee, uh, Judge McKee uh, rightly points out that I think when you view Brown in the lens of Dr. Kenneth Clark and uh, uh, Dr. John Hope Franklin and others who brought in the social science there, you've got to deal with the temper of the times and what could because, as I said, the court had a an interesting makeup. This was not a court of justices who well, who are like mine, and, and it took uh, uh, the, the chief justice something to maybe to pull them together. And I think so. The, you know, the brilliance of Brown is the fact it was a unanimous decision, and yet it did leave lingering questions and, and lingering criticism on both sides of the aisle. And I say both sides because even the very language that that black children who uh, are educated in separate systems with black children cannot get a good education, uh, to some extent that really was not true. Uh, and to some extent the actual integration uh, initially may have been uh, not good. But in the long run, uh, the effect of Brown in terms of moving integration and, and the use of the all-deliberate speed within the, within the context of that opinion uh, you know, came about as a result, again, of, uh, of federal cases. Uh, that and, and courageous federal judges uh, in the South, in particular, who began to move uh, to to implement the real uh, meaning of Brown uh, throughout the, the school system. So I, I think it's a continuing leg- legacy. But but to go back now and to analyze Brown in the lens of 2016 uh, is pro- probably not fair. Uh, if if one could somehow put yourself, if you want to be originalist, or if you do it from the Supreme Court's perspective, uh, to go back and see what was going on in 1954 and just the, the, how, how uh, dynamic this decision was and for it to come out unanimously at that time. Uh, you know, we in 2016 now can live in our world and say, well, this should have been done, that should have been done, and didn't fit this originalist approach. But nonetheless, I, I think the, the legacy of the decision stands so much so, as I pointed out, even Justice Scalia said he would have agreed with it, uh, at least the majority, and, and maybe for a different reason. Um, Chief Judge McKee, as, as Judge Wynn said, we, we could spend more than an entire podcast on this question, but do you agree with him that Brown uh, deserves uh, great respect in its time? And what fulfilled its promise? Was it civil rights activism or federal judges or some combination of those two things? I, I think it was a combination to the extent the promise was fulfilled. I would argue in many ways, I think, would agree that the promise of Brown has never really been <clears throat> fulfilled and we don't have to go too much further than public schools of Philadelphia to see a system of segregated education. It's not de jure segregation, but it's segregation nevertheless. And if the Dow experiments are accurate, and, and I suggested earlier that they still uh, bear some fruit, the same kind of opprobrium may well be there now that was there. Then you can argue that it was a greater 
kind of self-hatred before because it had the imprimatur of law and today's are just living situations. And that's an incredibly complicated uh, discussion that I have neither the, the intellect nor the time to get into. I'm not a trained sociologist or uh, and that kind of demographics I'm not that familiar with. So I can take it back to the question of original intent because it just occurred to me when you and Judge Wynn were speaking that it's, it's kind of ironic that when we talk about original intent and the intent of the founders, we talk about the original Constitution, not the intent of the framers of the amendments thereafter. It's what I mentioned earlier. <clears throat> if we get locked into the non-living Constitution, we then dealt with a document that some would point to and say it was divinely expired. Other would, others would point to and say that at least for a period of time it protected the institution of slavery. And that's the problem I have with a rigid kind of original intent. That The way around that is always to say, and as you mentioned it with, with Sumner on his deathbed, that at the time of the 14th Amendment he didn't see the 14th Amendment um, allowing integrated education. But by the time that he had, he had grown to the point that he could visualize it, to me, that's why the concept of a living constitution is so important, because it allows for personal growth. It allows uh, judges and legislators to take into account social change and different dynamics. And I don't want to get into the same-sex marriage thing, but I cannot imagine that if we're locked into original intent that you could argue very successfully that um, the founders envisioned the institution of marriage as being allowed between same-sex couples. To me, that's just not the question. The question is whether or not there's a constitutional right to do that. And I use the term constitutional right in terms of the enlightenment that has come about since then. It's the same kind of enlightenment that now would say the protections built into the Constitution for the institution of slavery were incredibly ill-advised. And I just can't see locking our intellect into a, a time vacuum. Uh, I think we do our society and ourselves a real injustice when we do that. And I think it's so think. It's, it's largely disingenuous because, as I said earlier, it's like saying that, well, this will work for me except when it no longer works for me and then I'm going to go someplace else with it. And um, that's why I think a living constitution is a much more dynamic way of getting at this. It, it allows for the growth that resulted in Brown. I will mention Aaron V. Cooper that was decided, I think, in 58 that was an incredibly important case, also litigated by the Legal Defense Fund, which was the case with the Supreme Court uh, basically toward told the governor of Arkansas, Orville Farbus, that he could not interfere with the Arkansas or the Little Rock Nine by using uh, state militia to prevent them from going to school. And the reason why it's so important, in the opinion, the court recounts the fact that after Brown, school boards across the South basically began complying with Brown. They began setting about how they would implement the desegregation that Brown required. And it was then local people running for office that began a, a kind of a demagoguery. I'm, I'm not sure the court uses that term, but that's what it was, to get votes by railing against Brown or railing against the um, marauders from the North coming in to tell folks how to live and, and asserting states' rights to as a bastion against uh, the decree of Brown. But just looking at what the local school authorities did, according to Aaron V. Cooper, anyhow, they were complying with Brown. And that, to me, is really huge because it says something about the nature of this constitutional democracy. These were elected officials. My guess is they didn't particularly care for Brown, but it being the order of the Supreme Court, they were willing to invoke it until certain politicians got in the stump and started railing against Brown and getting the people upset against that, and then uh, the governor of Arkansas steps in and refuses to allow it to happen, and that's when Cooper V. Aaron um, came about. So it's a, it's a very, very important case. Along with that, and it seems taught out of the context, but I think it's very relevant here, <clears throat> the Watergate 
uh, tapes. It was a case where uh, a court that was clearly a majority of Republicans, it may have been all Republicans, issued an order that they had to know was going to bring down a Republican president. They issued the order unanimously. The president complied with the order, clearly not wanting to, but it goes to the importance of the institutional uh, democracy that, <clears throat> that we have and the incredible importance of the, of the United States Supreme Court. And I can't overstate that because the only currency that the U.S. Supreme Court has, the only currency that Judge Wynn and I have in our courts is the trust of the people, the confidence of the people, and their feeling that, that we're deciding cases based upon our own intellectual view of how the law ought to be applied, and we're doing it in a way that is not tethered to our personal ideology. And when we lose that, and I think we're starting to lose that now, the entire fabric of our constitutional democracy becomes frayed and begins to unravel. Wow. Very powerful example of the fragility of judicial legitimacy and the need for people to have confidence in it. As you say, Cooper v. Aaron, the justices are so afraid that President Eisenhower is going to ignore them that they sign the decision personally with their own uh, signatures, and he, in fact, does send the troops. Uh, you also say we focus on the original understanding of the original Constitution, and we focus less on the original understanding of the Reconstruction Amendments. This great second founding initiative, as we're calling it, is designed to remedy that. And with this wonderful support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and our partners at the Constitutional Accountability Center, we are going to be having five years of discussions like this one. And boy, this is an auspicious kickoff to them because this is just phenomenal. I would love to keep it going, but we need to close. So I'm going to ask for closing arguments. And Judge Wynn, uh, my question uh, to you is... Have we achieved the promise of the uh, original understanding of the 14th Amendment, and what are the challenges ahead? Well, I'm not sure the goal is to achieve the promise of the original understanding of the 14th Amendment, uh, but I do get the, the gist of your question. I, I, think, I think the 14th Amendment has uh, withstood a test of time and has become such an important uh, vessel for the enforcement of individual rights that are guaranteed under the Bill of Rights, uh, so much so that uh, I, I think more and more uh, uh, groups across the country are looking to the Supreme Court when it comes to rights more so, which is kind of interesting that the Supreme Court, uh, by virtue of the 14th Amendment, and this is when speaking, probably not anyone else, it seems to me that the Supreme Court has garnered a, a significant amount of power from the three branches of government through the through the interpretation of the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, I mean, you if you could think about the number of cases that would not be there if the Fourteenth Amendment were very, was very clear and very concise in terms of how it articulated rights, and if it had said we incorporate all of the Bill of Rights here, uh, just how limited the power of the court might be in terms of of saying and 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 and, and maybe dealing with the conduct of individuals on a day to day basis. Uh, it, it's just fascinating, but, you know, that's what makes this job just really, really good. We do the very best we can. I'm, I'm confident that the justices on the Supreme Court, uh, uh, I, you know, for all what the public may think, I, I absolutely believe that they grapple with these issues and they go to it, to the very core of it, in, in a very deliberate way. They are constrained by the fact that they have to write down what they say. Uh, and they know that when they write it down, they're going to be subject to all kinds of criticisms and maybe some accolades every now and then. But the fact of the matter is, uh, this is, you know, for, if there's any argument that there's a part of the Constitution that's living, uh, this is probably a living part of it, because uh, who knows what this this uh, uh, 
this this uh, particular amendment means in the context of uh, context of so many questions and issues that, that that are before the court and ones that we can see are coming to the court. Uh, so I, I'm looking forward to it. I, I will add, uh, we, we did talk about the clauses here. There's one clause we, did, we didn't touch on, and probably rightfully so, the citizenship clause, uh, which has become more of, I think, more of a side issue than, than probably it, uh, one that the court is really going to invest a lot of time in. But I do look forward to the, the many decisions and the issues that are coming before the courts and as we continue to grapple with uh, the significance of the 14th Amendment and how it has uh, uh, I, I don't want to use the word evolved, but how it has uh, been interpreted during this time. <laughs> Beautifully said. Thank you so much for that. Chief Judge McKee, last word to you. Have we achieved the promises of the 14th Amendment, and what are the challenges ahead? Well, we have not, and I think that is the, ch- the challenge ahead. Um, I, I saw something recently, which I use by way of analogy. When I think of this, when I think of the progress we're making under the 14th Amendment, it was uh, someone talking about climate change, and it was a a video of a person walking his dog on the beach, and the dog was going to the left, the right, front and back on this leech, leash, but the, the man was continuing to walk forward on the beach. And the point was, when it comes to climate change, focus on the man and not the dog. And I'd like to think the same is true of the 14th Amendment. There will be <clears throat> movements backward and forward, and, and there will be some stepping away from some of the... Um, the important advances that have been made, but I'd like to think that the progress is going to be the progress of the man and continually moving forward and not the dog who's dodging back and forth and tugging at the leash in all different kinds of directions. King said something very much like that when he talked about the arch of history being long, but bending toward progress. I'd like to think that's true. There's a pessimistic part of me which keeps me from being totally convinced of the fact it's true, but only time will tell. Uh, superb discussion. I'm so honored to have had both of you to kick off this exciting second founding initiative to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment. I hope, if you're free, that both of you will join us here on May 10th in Philadelphia for our live kickoff, which will just be a blockbuster. And uh, thank you for illuminating you. our officers, uh, our listeners on this phenomenal topic. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff, and thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Take care, Jim. Thanks. Thanks to you both. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. I want to know what you think of the podcast. Email me at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. And finally, my friends, despite our inspiring congressional charter, The National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.